I want to start uh, speaking to you by reading to you from uh, a book, The Cost of Discipleship. It originally was published as Discipleship by a German uh, Lutheran called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sins, the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price. Grace without cost. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of which a man will boldly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must Knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer wrote those words in uh, Germany in 1937. Uh, Hitler had come to power a few years before, in 1933, and... Um, uh, sadly, most Christians in Germany had applauded Hitler's inspirational leadership. There were even church leaders who, 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 who called him uh, God's anointed one for the moment. And uh, Bonhoeffer stood against that. He became the leader of a group called the Confessing Christians and it was a stand that was ultimately to lead to Bonhoeffer's death. In 1943, he was arrested. And uh, in 1945, just, just a few weeks before the end of the war, he was hanged. Cheap grace was one of Bonhoeffer's absolute bugbears. People who claimed to be following Jesus Christ without actually being prepared to face any cost at all in their life. And he was determined 
to lead the way to empower the Christians of his nation to stand up for what was right, to stand up for Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. For him the cost was his death. And I have to say, if Bonhoeffer was here today in um, uh, the West, I don't think he would see anything terribly different than he saw in in 1930s Germany. Christianity is so often portrayed, as he describes it there, as, as something free to be, to, to be peddled without any particular cost to the receiver. It is portrayed as the most satisfying lifestyle. Never mind the cost. Christians are encouraged to cho- choose what church to go to according to how much they can get from it, not how best they can serve. I, I've noticed, I've been, I said a few weeks ago in politics, um, Christians often sound distressingly like people who are just campaigning for their own narrow self-interest, their own comfort and railing the fact that life is more uncomfortable than it used to be rather than campaigning for the common good. seems to me actually many of us, most of the time as Christians, are embracing that cheap grace that Bonhoeffer described. One popular little mantra in the evangelical world um, that I, I suspect comes from that desire for cheap grace is, is speaking about God's unconditional love. Now, in one sense, it is certainly true that God's love is unconditional. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. God loved us while we were still sinners, sent his son to the cross to die for us while we were still sinners. The Bible says that God loves us because he loves us. But in another sense, frankly, I don't think Jesus would recognise the phrase unconditional love. Just a couple of chapters on from the one we're studying, Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Or um, in Matthew chapter 16, verse uh, 24, If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. His call was far from unconditional. It was, in a sense, the opposite. If you want to come and follow me, you have to give up everything, he says. Or as Bonhoeffer puts it, When Christ calls a man, he said, he bids him come and die. 
Now in Matthew 8 and 9, as uh, we've, been, we've been looking at, um, Matthew has collected together, in fact, a whole um, set of stories about Jesus which establish Jesus' authority. They are stories actually that are gathered from various parts of his ministry. It becomes clear when you look at where they pop up in the, in the other Gospels. Matthew has collected them together according to this theme, the theme of Jesus' authority. And in fact, we saw last week that there is a structure to these two chapters. Three miracles followed by some teaching on discipleship, three miracles teaching on discipleship, and, uh, and so on. And last week, we looked at the first three miracles where Jesus establishes his authority. His authority as he touches a leper and amazingly the leper becomes clean when Jesus should have become dirty, unclean. Or his authority as he goes to a centurion and reveals that he can heal that, uh, that centurion's um, uh, servant at sim- simply with his word. And finally, as uh, uh, in, in the last section, his authority actually to forgive sins. That quote from Isaiah 53 pointed to that. Here is a man with unbridled um, uh, authority then. And not surprisingly, people start to follow him. Note what he does, verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. He sees a great crowd running, uh, coming towards him and he runs away. He is not particularly interested in great crowds. He is not particularly interested in, in, in peddling himself or any message that he might have simply to gather as many followers as he possibly can. It is a consistent pattern of Jesus that when too many people gather, gather that something seems to click in his mind, now nah, something's not right. I've got to go away. That's not my ministry just to get as many people traipsing after me as possible. And here, in verses 19 to 22, he starts to show us clearly why that is. Because there are two people who um, are would-be disciples. A teacher of the law in verse 19 and another disciple, as Matthew describes him in verse 21. And... uh, Uh, To each of them, he says something characteristic which alerts us to what it means to follow him. We must take this on board if we are to be the kind of followers of Jesus that he wants us to be. The first word that he has is to someone who is definitely a little overconfident, a little cocky. A teacher of the law came to him. Teacher, he says, verse 19, I will follow you wherever you go. 
a clue in the text that this chap hasn't really grasped who Jesus is and what the call on his life is yet is that he addresses him as teacher. Matthew often uh, um, alerts us to the fact that there is an inadequate understanding of Jesus by pointing out to us the title he gives him. Teacher. Now that's, that's not good enough for the person who we've just seen who heals with a simple word. But this chap does not lack enthusiasm, does he? I will follow you wherever you go. or I, I, I don't know where you're going, Jesus, but I'm going there with you. Crossing the lake, as Jesus clearly was, as well, was crossing into Gentile territory. A place where there were unclean things like pigs around. And uh, teachers of the law, of course, needed to keep themselves clean. It's a bold thing to say, oh, well, you going over there? That's, I'll come with you. But it's not bold enough, according to Jesus. He gives this man no congratulation, no encouragement, and no assurances. Instead, he says something deeply challenging. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, that's him, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I've got nowhere. You realise that, don't you? Teacher of the Lord. And that will be you if you follow me. Now let, let, let's try and get this clear in our minds so that we, we, we see what he is saying and what he isn't saying. He doesn't mean that every single person of, who, who wants to follow Jesus, must make, wants to follow him, must make themselves homeless. Okay? He doesn't see um, um, obedience as being necessarily associated with homelessness. You will uh, be relieved to hear. Not least we know that because he lived in a home and in fact pursued a conventional career of carpentry for, uh, for the first 30 years of his life and he wasn't sinning. What it means though is that those things cannot rule us. Jesus knew one day he had to move away from his own home. He had to accept an itinerant ministry. And because that was God's call on his life, he would have been sinning to stay in the house. For each one of us here, our security cannot rule us. Even foxes have holes somewhere to bolt and to hide but I don't, he says. Our comfort cannot rule us. Even birds make nice little nests and line them with feathers at this time of year and it's really quite comfortable but I, I don't get that, he says. Our, the, the, the need for predictability in life cannot rule us. The fox knows where he's got his bed for the night. The bird knows where it's got its bed for the night. I don't. 
Every day is a day of following Jesus, not know, uh, following God, not knowing where I will go. He says. And that's the call of discipleship. And it is fundamentally, it seems to me, opposed to profound underlying attitudes in our culture. In many cultures, you see, to be honest, the home that people have is not such a great thing. They can walk away from it. To be honest, they know that life is a bit uncertain because they haven't got access to the full range of medicines. And they know life's like that anyway and therefore to follow Jesus is, 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 in that way is a relatively natural thing. But we have surrounded ourselves with an illusion of security. We think we can control how long our life is going to be and therefore we have a right and responsibility to do that. We think that we can make ourselves secure. We think we deserve certain levels of comfort. And Jesus says, no, we don't. No, we can't. I notice, for instance, that, and we were discussing it at the tea table last night as a a family, in plenty of other eras in this country in the last 150 years, there has been a national sense that people were prepared to sacrifice things because they were building a better Britain. In the Victorian era, there was a big, strong sense that the whole nation was working together towards a bright new future. In the post-war years, We were a lot poorer than this and our national debt was a lot bigger than it is now. But there was a sense in the nation that we needed to sacrifice things in order to build for the future. And of course, therefore, if that was there in the whole nation, that came relatively natural to Christians. And now, it's just not there. Look at, the, look at the politicians squabbling over who has got the plan that will basically make people the most comfortable. There is no big vision as far as I can see in any of them. Because people aren't prepared to live but for a vision. Only for their immediate comfort. That saps the strength of Christians because it is fundamentally opposed to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To follow Jesus Christ is to say knowing him and enjoying him and serving him and living for, for, for his promises trump all other things Because we have a great and glorious purpose for our lives. And only as we are, our hearts are captivated in that way can we start to live in the way that Jesus calls us to do. I mean, there are glorious 
uh, exceptions to that that uh, that I know and I'm sure you know I could th- I could ne- I could take you to a friend of ours who who uh, uh, as a young woman she had an offer of marriage from a perfectly nice chap but she knew that he would take her away from her first love Jesus Christ and so she said no she's still single it's been tough I could uh, tell you about a friend of mine He's, he, he grew up in California where 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 uh, better in the world to grow up. He's a, he's a vet um, and he has devoted himself to being a vet in extremely poor parts of the world. Today, he, he has nothing, he owns nothing. I could tell you countless other stories, jobs not taken because attractive where they were, though they were, We just knew that it wouldn't fulfil our Christian calling. On the other hand, jobs accepted, despite the significant cost of doing so, because this is the way God wanted the person to go. I could take you to the couple, more than one couple, who made a costly decision to have a profoundly disabled child rather than go for a termination that the medical world was pressing them to do, because life is valuable, and though there's been a great cost to them, they did that and they do not regret it. I could, I could tell you about innumerable trivial decisions made by people, uh, big and small, not for their own comfort, but, because, but for Christ because they knew this is what Christ was calling them to do. I could tell you about the older members of this church who made decisions to employ me for a start when I certainly wasn't going to... Um, uh, the uh, 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 the best for everyone's immediate comfort on, uh, at that time, and then costly decisions that people made on behalf of this church, so that it is healthy in the way that it is now. That is Jesus' calling. It is not cheap grace, you see, that he offers. It's costly grace. He says, if you want to follow me, everything, everything, everything else is subordinated to that. Let me say to you as well, you will not be the loser. He does not give us a a promise of, of just unremitting misery if you follow him. There are four families in this church that I was uh, thinking of, particularly in the issue of housing, for instance, where the families have made costly decisions to serve Christ, accepted that that probably uh, is a big no-no for their housing situation and the Lord has given them wonderful housing, specifically. Judy and I and the family being one of those. Um, We're not the losers. We just say, I cannot make the decision for that. I will make the decision for Christ and let him supply my needs as he sees fit. My vet friend from California, he hates anyone talking about the sacrifice that he's made because he says, I haven't made a sacrifice. Everything's been gain as far as I'm concerned. He's one of the happiest people I've ever met. 
sometimes the gain. It's simply what God does in our hearts and the contentment that he gives us. You will not be the loser, but you must give up everything, says Jesus. And, and let me say as well, this is not just for superheroes. I think a lot of people often think that. There are, there, there are, there are a minority of people who, who do the full discipleship of Jesus thing and give up everything. And, and in some Christian traditions, they're the priests. There was a heretical sect called the, um, the Cathars in the, um, uh, medieval France who had um, a top segment who were called the perfecti, the perfect ones, and everyone else were just the believers. That's, that's what happens in the religious world sometimes, and it's, it's absolutely what, not what Jesus says. Jesus says everyone who wants to follow him must have that attitude. There aren't perfect people and ordinary people, there's just uh, disciples of Jesus. That um, verse in Matthew 10:37 I quoted says, anyone who loves his father than, more than me is not worth, worthy of me. Or in Matthew 16:24, he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take the cross. This is, if you want to be a follower of Jesus here, this is for you. You may or may not become a church leader like me. You may do any one of a thousand jobs. But your calling is to submit the whole of your life to Jesus Christ. Say another thing. It is not about just an initial response either. For young people, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about this. Very, many Christian lives are like the cynic's view of marriage. A short spasm of enthusiasm followed by a long period of regret. And, and, and sadly, many, many people, in a quiet way, that is what happens in their Christian life. They're incredibly enthusiastic when they're young, when they're 20-something. And it just slowly peters away, whether it's disappointment with God, more often it is the rising pressures of family. There is a big crisis in the church in this country for finding leaders in their 30s and 40s. I don't mean ministers, I mean lay leaders. Up and down the country I hear people saying, we're running the church on the 20-somethings because they're enthusiastic and something happens in the 30s and 40s to people that just makes them duck out. They get absorbed by the pressures of work and the pressures of family. I know the pressures. I'm not immune from them. I see them in other people. It's a real issue. Not just an initial response, a lifelong response. What has been described as a long obedience in the same direction is what Jesus calls us to. Thousands upon thousands of little decisions made for Jesus is what builds a life. And many, many people find in fact, an increasing proportion of them, frankly, are not made for Christ. 
and their Christian life sort of ebbs away to mediocrity or worse as a result. Last week I used the, the analogy of, of, of fish, didn't I? And I, you know, I just said there are plenty of fish that, that need perfect water in order to survive. And I was saying, no, we need Christians who are like the gold, Tim's goldfish that has to survive in the murky depths of the algae. Because we must be clear, this is a toxic environment in many ways to be a Christian. At the specific level in this country, there is a lack of people who are prepared to go full-time into Christian ministry. It's not the only issue, but it is one issue. Church is desperately short of leaders. So, will we hear this sober warning from Jesus to all of us? There is no higher priority for Christians than serving Jesus. We have to be prepared to go wherever that takes us. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear that really, really clearly. Because Jesus was disconcerting in the way that he ensured people should hear that message. He didn't say, come on in and we'll work it out along the way. He said, actually, anyone who wants to build a tower needs to work out whether they've got the resources to do it. Anyone who wants to go to battle needs to work out whether they've got the, 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 the forces to win the battle. Anyone who wants to follow me needs to know what the cost is. And here's the cost, everything. But you see, he's worth it. Will you follow him? And for those who have made a start, let me just say to you, do not turn back. Make those decisions, small and large, for Jesus. Make a habit of it. A habit of not doing so, you see, can become so ingrained in our life. We can become so, so captured in the life that we have chosen that it is almost impossible to break free. And yet there is incredible freedom that comes from putting Jesus first every day, in everything. Day after, week after, month after, year after, decade. No one who has done that considers themselves to be a loser. And then there's another word much more briefly we'll look at. In verses 21 and 22. Another disciple said to Jesus, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. 
But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. On the surface of it, it looks like, and many commentators have thought, that his, his father has died and he's clearly got some, some, some family duties to do in, in, uh, associated with his farmer's, uh, father's duties. So, so uh, just give me a couple of days, Jesus, and, um, and I'll be with you, says the disciple. Actually, that is unlikely. It's unlikely because it's unlikely if his father's died that he'd be even there in the first place. Um, and more, um, uh, it, it is not actually the way that a uh, first century Middle Eastern person would have read it. It's much more likely that it's an idiom for can I wait until my father is safely dead? See, at the moment I've got all these family pressures on me, Jesus. It would bring great dishonour to my father and my family if I became a Christian. Just give me a bit of time, Jesus. Once my father's safely dead, then I'll come and follow you. I remember um, looking at this passage with a, with a Hindu uh, young man from a, from a very, very elevated um, social position a number of years ago I remember him telling me that he'd looked all around Oxford and he'd not seen any house that was half as big as the house that he, he had in, uh, in India he, he was really from one of those national families in India and he said I just can't become a Christian I have duties I have responsibilities maybe once my father is dead he said and I've completed my duty to my father, maybe then I, as the head of the house, can establish us as a Christian family, but I can't do that now. And thank the Lord, he actually ultimately saw he couldn't take that stance. And he was baptised. We cannot wait we cannot put other duties first. Let me just rear the kids. Let me just get established in my career. Let, let me just get a, a, a foothold on the housing ladder. Let me just get to this point and then I'll put Jesus first. He wouldn't allow that. He says, now, now's the moment. If you've heard my call, now is the moment. We don't know quite what the idiom means, let the dead bury their own dead. Perhaps it means let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Perhaps it's just an obscure idiom. But we do know what it means, don't we? Don't put off those duties and avoid the duty of following me. Follow me, he says, and let the dead bury their dead. So will you follow Jesus now?
That's the question. He makes no promises about what that will look like except that you'll be with him. Come follow me, he says. Bonhoeffer, when he was in prison, continued to write. His writings have been collected as letters and papers from prison. And at one point he wrote this. Who stands fast, he says. Only the man who is ready to sacrifice all this when he is called to obedient and responsible action in faith and exclusive allegiance to God. The responsible man who tries to make his whole life an answer to the question and the call of God. Then he says, where are these responsible people? Are they here? 